Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am director of the Global Summitry Project. I am happy to be back with you. Um, and uh, just a reminder, all our research activities at the Global Summitry Project can be found at our website, globalsummitryproject.com. You'll see our podcasts, uh, of which this today is the, um, a podcast special issue. Um, we've done work on um, the G20, and we're now turning our attention to the Sustainable Development Goals video interviews, and more. So it's a real pleasure to invite back into the virtual studio our good colleague from Brazil, uh, Oliver de la Costa Stanco, uh, to discuss the Brazilian presidential election and uh, also to explore uh, the consequences of the, uh, the victory, narrow as it was, for uh, a returning president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, and his victory, of course, over the uh, current president, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, it, it has real consequences, and we are very pleased to be able to invite Oliver back into the studio. Oliver is an Associate Professor of International Relations at Guitilla Vargas Foundation, FGV, as it's frequently known. Uh, he's in Sao Paulo. Uh, along with several of his colleagues, um, Oliver launched a new School of International Relations. He's also a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington a non-resident uh, fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute, which is in Berlin, a columnist for Estado de Sao Paulo, Brazilian paper, and of course, um, uh, uh, America's Quarterly. Oliver has written extensively on the politics of rising powers generally, and of course, um, uh, his most recent work is Post-Western World, How Emerging Powers Are Remaking the Global Order, He's a frequent commentator uh, on Brazilian politics as well as the politics of the hemisphere. He contributes extensively to journals and the media in Brazil and across the region. And so it's just with a real enthusiasm that I invite um, Oliver back into the virtual studio. This is the Now series, episode 29. Uh, with Oliver on the Brazilian presidential election and its consequences. Just a quick reminder, of course, you can catch all our podcasts here at, um, the, uh, at the Global Summitry Project website, but you can also uh, catch the podcasts at Apple Podcasts. So let's get Oliver into the virtual studio. So it's great to have you back in uh, the virtual studio, Oliver. Good to see you. Thank you very much for having me. That's great. So, uh, big uh, second round uh, presidential uh, runoff in Brazil recently. I guess it was October 30th, thereabouts. And uh, so where does it all stand now? I mean, what, what do you think of President Bolsonaro's so-called concession uh, speech 
which I take it was all of two minutes in length. Um, and in fact, uh, most suggested that it was really his chief of staff who indicated that Bolsonaro was prepared to allow for the transition uh, to um, a new president who is, in fact, an old president. And that's uh, Lula. What's up? So, first of all, it was an extraordinarily close election, mm -hmm. but thanks to a very modern electronic uh, voting system, and people found out about the final result uh, uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and I think that's um, in a way that was important to reduce the risk of, of contest uh, contestation, because uh, in a sort of US style uh, scenario, I think this could have dragged on for, for many days because. Uh, I mean, it, it was about a, a difference of two million votes, but still, uh, it's the closest uh, election, closest runoff uh, we've had since Brazil became a democracy. And mm -hmm. uh, for years, basically, since Bolsonaro got elected, uh, people have warned that uh, he may not be willing to accept the result. Uh, there were, particularly after January 6, uh, 2021, uh, in sort of the turbulence that uh, Trump's refusal to concede in the United States had caused, a lot of people said, you know, we're basically, there's, or there's a significant risk that something like that may happen in Brazil as well. So mm -hmm. nobody actually expected Bolsonaro to concede and just say, you know, let's uh, let's turn the page. There's, yeah. I can, I, I'll try again in, in, in 2026. Um, so the silence, the initial silence, and then this very uh, strange, uh, uh, it wasn't really a concession. I mean, he thanked his voters um, and then but also said that they're right to feel uh, enraged. Uh, he talked about injustice. Uh, so in a way, I think he was walking a fine line because he needed to uh, to basically satisfy his most radical supporters who uh, think that the elections were stolen, even though uh, there's never been any evidence presented that this is actually the case, or, the, or even that Brazil's electoral system uh, is vulnerable to, mm -hmm. to fraud. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, I think, had to, different from, from Trump, he uh, was afraid to say that the elections were stolen, to explicitly say that, because the electoral courts in Brazil aware of the dangers of the precedent of the United States, uh, had signaled that they would not um, refrain from punishing Bolsonaro if he were to question okay. the result. And in fact, a lot of people had to remove material from uh, from social media, uh, were forced to, to, to delete posts questioning the result. Uh, and I think the, the president was afraid of, of losing his political rights in a way to, to be able to stand uh, for years from now. So he basically presented this very um, ambiguous message, which keeps um, his followers happy, uh, who are, you know, for days have been protesting on highways across Brazil, uh, thousands of people still protesting in front of military headquarters asking for a, a military intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, um, he is not that aggressive to the point that the electoral courts can punish him and uh, basically 
uh, remove him from the political scene. Okay, um, let's let's go back a little bit to the first round and, and try to ex- see explain what's been going on, because it's not a surprise that Lula, who won the second round uh, in the first round, uh, received forty eight percent of the vote. But what is a little bit surprising is that Bolsonaro received some forty three percent of the vote, and indeed, you know, in the final second round, uh, Lula won fifty point nine percent to Bolsonaro's uh, 49.1%. What, ex- what explains this? What, why such a close vote with respect to the two candidates? So this is the first time that a president actually lost re-election in Brazilian history. Um, I think there were two big trends. Uh, the, the first just always uh, present is a massive incumbency advantage in Brazil. Uh, if you're president Brazil, you uh, have control over what we call uh, a máquina pública, which is which which uh, actually means the public machine, which means you have the entire administration at your disposal to, for mm-hmm. example, massively increase public spending just in time for the election <laughs> to temporarily increase approval ratings. And uh, there there was actually a law that Bolsonaro had to change a constitutional law in order to uh, be able to spend more. Uh, so there is, um, you know, massive subsidies, fuel subsidies, um, and, you know, people had suddenly money in their pockets and then did create uh, some feel-good factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of poor Brazilians received cash transfer payments uh, just in time for the election. But there was clearly a huge effort to um, to mobilize the federal government, which is much more powerful than in the United States, in part because uh, the public sector is just more important as a share of, of uh, the economy than mm-hmm. it would be the case in, in the U.S. In so that's, I think, um, mm-hmm. uh, explains how unusual it is for Bolsonaro to lose the election. Um, the second issue, which explains why Bolsonaro, I think, um, was quite successful, is that the so the populist rights digital ground game is just better. Is uh, and the Workers' Party um, took just such a long time to uh, to understand how to actually respond, because this is not only about sort of getting the message, sort of finding the right message. This is about being able to respond to things that happen on tens of different networks and, you know, have all these, you know, WhatsApp group, Telegram groups, be on TikTok, on Quay, on mm. Facebook, on YouTube, on, and have this, you know, massive operation that really spreads uh, ideas in short videos very quickly. And I think what we've learned is that, you know, writing a really smart op-ed, uh, which is, if you actually read it, is is convincing and well thought out, but which is out uh, 24 hours after the event. It's just not as as uh, you know important as being able to 10 minutes after Bolsonaro said something, yep. uh, just to send to thousands and thousands of contacts. Uh, be, and sometimes, because Bolsonaro made a lot of mistakes during the campaign, to divert attention, for example, right? So, for example, there, there was this case where uh, Bolsonaro made very controversial comments about all sorts of issues. He attacked female journalists. Um, and the campaign realized that it was necessary to, you know, make people look the other way. 
And if you have this very powerful digital uh, strategy, you can actually do that. Um, and it was also interesting that, I mean, Lula is 77, doesn't use social media, never won because of social media. And the way he discusses, you know, the way he uses uh, TV debates, for example, is just from a different time generation, basically, yeah. because he makes these long-winded arguments. So if you actually listen <laughs> to the whole thing, you know, that may be interesting to sort of him making an interesting uh, argument. But nowadays, you need to have you need to have these zingers that you can basically separate into sort of very short videos, sometimes 15 seconds or 30 seconds, and then just send them out on, on WhatsApp. Nobody watches like this two and a half minute video way too long. People no longer patient enough for that. So I think there was, there was that. I think the third issue are the cultural wars, um, yep. which uh, were immensely powerful uh, were because Bolsonaro had to, uh, you know, People had to stop making this campaign about the economy and a, a referendum about himself because he's just not a popular president. I mean, he was he's profoundly polarizing. He had basically a rejection rate of nearly 50 percent. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had to increase the rejection rate of his opponent. I mean, it's really quite amazing if you think about it, having a president who's got a nearly 50 percent rejection rate. And gets forty nine point one percent. I mean, that's that basically uh, was possible because the Bolsonaro campaign systematically focused on demonizing uh, the Workers' Party, focusing almost entirely on sort of morals and the future of the family, and saying that the Workers' Party would close churches and that um, you know they were godless communists. And and all that, which I think, you know, made uh, had an impact because I think that and that was a bit like the dynamic we, we're seeing in the United States since sort of Trump and Hillary squared off in, in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, the the idea that we're the people, uh, the elites are making fun of us. Um, let's take a country back. I mean, these things are quite powerful because just like in the United States, I mean, all major newspapers, all major, you know, policy experts, the international community. I mean, everybody said, you can't reelect this man. I mean, he's bad. He, you know, he's destroying the Amazon. He and still. And I think that's something for us to ponder. I don't really have a clear answer. I mean, if you look at education, for example. The people who were appointed by the Bolsonaro administration as ministers of education had no knowledge whatsoever about education. And several of them were sacked. I mean, the first one was sacked after a public meeting, a public uh, hearing, yeah. where he was questioned these very basic things and he was unable to answer anything. And, 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 and the second one was sacked after attacking China and the president of France and uh, calling for the military to imprison the Supreme Court justices. The third right. was actually sacked before he could even start, a day before he was supposed to be inaugurated because he had falsified his, his curriculum. The fourth was sacked because he actually asked um, mayors to buy Bibles with a photograph of himself on the cover as a, an evangelical pastor. So you look at that and it's like, how can people not be outraged that, you know, the person in charge of public education, which is such an important area, how can that person receive 49%? But part of, I think, the, the reason is 
that there was such a broad elite, sort of intellectual elite rejection of the president that that Bolsonaro used that in his favor and said, you know, some of these people may have made mistakes, but they're authentic. They're not like part of the system. They're not elites, right? They're not elites. And it was really amazing how Bolsonaro was able to tell a story about how he was up against the elites. And that's Uh the man who is the president of the country, (laughs) who has tremendous control over you know, virtually resources, right? Resources. He's, he's, he's got the army behind him. He's got the police forces behind him. He's, and he says, I'm against the system and people are buying it. I mean, hmm. there's something there, which I think we still don't understand. And which is similar to what's happening in the U S what's happening also, because now about half of Bolsonaro voters think that Lula is not the legitimate president because they think the elections were stolen and I think that that's going to be just very, very difficult um, to govern a country where you know just people don't think that uh, that you're the the actual president, the legitimate president. Wow. So let's look at um, Lula going forward. Clearly, um, a major distinction between Lula and Bolsonaro is, of course, the Amazon rainforest and how they see it. Um, you know, uh, hours after Lula was elected, uh, at least according to the FT, Lula pledged to halt destruction of the Amazon rainforest and restore Brazil as an international leader on climate issues. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he may be attending the COP27, notwithstanding, right. notwithstanding he's not president of Brazil yet. But in any case, he may be uh, there. Um, and, you know, it, it's evident that uh, during Bolsonaro's um, term, uh, a sharp increase in Amazon deforestation has occurred. Um, and if you look at the polling, uh, won the, he, Bolsonaro, won the popular vote in more than half of the states that make up the Amazon forest. Uh, in those areas, Mining and other industries provide some of the few kind of economic opportunities uh, that are available uh, in, in those regions. So, you know, it ha- what's going to happen here? What you know is is Lula going to be able to pre- uh, to move forward on uh, you know his efforts to uh, kind of rein in a destruction of the Amazon? I think it's going to be a massive challenge, and it's important to remember that uh, the Amazon wasn't really on voters' minds uh, Mm -hmm. when they headed to the polls. And people who are today seen as key architects of environmental destruction under the Bolsonaro government received stellar, uh, yeah, had stellar performances, actually. So the former Ministry of the Environment, who is uh, being prosecuted for uh, uh, illegal uh, um, timber trafficking, and who's really an international symbol of of, of, uh, of irresponsible management of the Amazon, uh, was one of the most voted uh, candidates for uh, uh, for the Chamber of Deputies. I mean, he's going to be tremendously popular, really? uh, and who may run for mayor of São Paulo, the largest city uh, and the third most important position in the country in two years from now, doing sort of our midterms in a way. Yeah. And um, in the same way, the person, again, also seen as, as the 
face of of the denialist COVID nineteen uh, uh, response, uh, the former Minister of Health uh, received hundreds of thousands of votes, uh, as um, and it will be a member of the Chamber of Deputies for the state of Rio de Janeiro. So. Um, from an electoral point of view, there's no real mandate for change, in part because on the congressional level, in the Senate, and on state uh, capitals for governorships, you have lots mm-hmm. of bolsonaristas uh, occupying key positions of power. So you have a federal government willing to combat uh, environmental destruction, yes, but um, it's going to be very, very hard because there are so many challenges. I mean, you, we've seen... Um, a reversal of progress made in public education, public health, the mm. economy is a mess. Um, and then you have, have the Amazon also, which, you know, of course, a government can focus on many things at the same time. But let's say Lula gets the Amazon right and he gets the other stuff wrong. He will not get, get reelected. But if he gets the economy right and, and he improves sort of health and he doesn't get the Amazon right, he, he does have a shot at uh, you know, of having high approval ratings. So that's something I think to ponder. And in part that has to do, I think, with the nationalist backlash against environmental shaming. So mm-hmm. the fact that Bolsonaro is isolated and seen as a global environmental villain was just great for him, basically, because he he essentially said, they hate me because I'm the first Brazilian president to actually um, do what's right for us and not for the international community. Um, the second issue is that the environmental watchdogs, which previous governments had built yes. to protect the Amazon. I mean, these, these, these are very long-term projects. You need to train people. And this is a very dangerous, uh, you know, activity. I mean, um, uh, these are institutions which, which require lots of money because they need, military-style equipment uh, because they are facing uh, Mm -hmm. organized crime, which many times is transnational crime in a region the size of Western Europe. And, and, you know, um, there's no... You can't just say, let's now start protecting the Amazon without basically a you know, extremely complex, uh, controlling an extremely complex area where you have more than a million people who live in these regions and who, as you said, uh, didn't vote for environmental Mm -hmm. protection. I mean, there's a sharp division between indigenous populations who actually vastly voted for Lula and in in several um, villages, indigenous villages. You have 100% of votes going to Lula and 0% to Bolsonaro. By the way, this data is now being used by Bolsonaro supporters to quote unquote prove that there was fraud because they said it's impossible that the yeah. entire village votes just 100% for Lula. But that's actually, of course, what happens in the indigenous uh, communities. Um, now, the, the non-indigenous communities in the Amazon um, are mostly there because they think in a short term, they say deforestation, quickly uh and then move on that's sort of if you are if you have non-skilled labor and you're just really focused on how much money you get in the next couple of months that's the best strategy there is for you uh if you look at agribusiness or the big guys they know that unless brazil gets to try it they will have you know they face the risk of of, of boycotts against brazilian products for example uh so they're on lula's side but the the, the, domestic, the local population, I think, it, it will require a tremendous effort. 
And um, again, these are this is a law and order issue also, but it's also something that you need to give economic opportunity to people in these regions. This cannot be just say, let's suppress mm-hmm. all the the loggers and just preserve and you know you need to offer opportunity also so when it comes to the complexity of this enterprise i would compare it and it's not the same but it's something like you know state building is also really difficult right um nation building say it's super difficult because how do you assure that people in these regions are prosperous economically but you also need to to, to protect the environment um, now, I think the international community is very supportive of, of what, uh, what Lua aims to do, but I think uh, people will have to be very patient. And I would think that we could see an actual increase in deforestation over the next couple of months because people are accelerating the destruction because they know that a couple of months from now, there will be better policing, better monitoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on on average, I think 2023 could still be worse than 2022 because it just takes time to rebuild these structures which have been destroyed. Hmm. And, and there seemed to be a fair bit of disappointment in the, in the Lula campaign in that you, rather than looking forward and taking into account some of the concerns you've just raised with respect to dealing with um uh, Amazon deforestation, that he tended to look backward, that he tended to kind of reflect on the period in which he uh, was president. And that, of course, ended in 2010. Is, is Are there folks around him um, or even himself, you know, willing to understand that, you know, this is this is a new game and he's going to have to step up, right? Yeah, I mean, it's important to keep in mind also that the, the so if the environmental icons uh, perform badly on the in the polls. I mean, former minister of the environment Marina Silva, Silva also yeah. ran for president. Uh, she got about you know a, a third of the votes that the former minister of the environment Bolsonaro obtained. So uh, several, you know, the first female indigenous member of Congress uh, was not reelected. Um, you know, experts, uh, technocrats, uh, environmentalists who were ousted by the Bolsonaro government and who gained tremendous media coverage were not elected. As So there's that. Um, and then there's also a challenge that Lula built a very broad tent, which involves people from the far left, the mm-hmm. moderate left, the center, conservatives. He, I mean, he had this massive outreach to evangelicals, to agribusiness. And he decidedly moved towards the center. Center, yeah. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. still only got 50.9% uh, of the votes. I mean, that shows you uh, how big uh, the, also the rejection was, or how big the en- uh, incumbency advantage for, for Bolsonaro was. Okay. So if you just, if you really have to, if you look at the math, that explains why there was really very limited time to focus on the environment because they rightly uh, reasoned that that wouldn't give you any votes. Uh, it, uh, it may actually make you lose votes because the Bolsonaro government has construed this dichotomy of either you're for development jobs uh, or you're in favor of the forest and the international community, which doesn't care about resilience, but is more interested in extracting, I don't know, 
um, things from the Amazon. And so this idea also, if you're an environmentalist, you, you're not a nationalist. That's, that's a very powerful, deeply ingrained idea. So I think that, of course, the Lula, incoming Lula government must um, uh, focus on new challenges. But I think they're aware of that. And Lula's decision to go the uh, the COP27 in Egypt yeah. is a sign that he is aware of how important this is to the international community. And he was invited as part of these um, sub-state um, uh, delegations. So uh, he was invited by a governor of, of one of the states that are part of the Amazon. Um, but it's a lot of challenges on Lula's plate. Uh, it's a country that's more polarized than it ever was. Mm-hmm. It's a country that is much poorer now than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. It's a country that's... Um, angry. Um, it's a country where lots of people don't recognize him as the legitimate president. It's a country where the armed forces are unhappy that they are, uh, you know, being removed from, from positions of power. Mm-hmm. It's um, a profound anti-incumbency uh, sentiment across Latin America. I mean, this was the 15th straight free and fair election in Latin America where the opposition won. Right. People are really angry and they're angry at whoever is in power and they will be angry at the incoming president, too. This is not a left right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're angry at all the left wing. Uh, look at Chile. Uh, look at you know Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, Peru, Ecuador. All these governments have very low approval ratings because Latin America is in a state of, um, you know, profound reversal of expectations and it's a it's a region that has suffered massively from the pandemic, and where you know your major goal must be to stabilize the domestic situation. Brazil has basically lived through ten years of nonstop political upheaval, mm-hmm. and and then if you can manage to advance also on environmental protection, I mean that will be that will be fantastic. But it's 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 not. Let's say the president will not wake up and say. You know, I need to protect the Amazon. That's on top of, of of my priority list. It's really important to him, but I think we also have to be realistic um, because I would expect the first impeachment requests uh, being sent to the President of Congress against Lula uh, in 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 the first months of his administration. Uh, and I think we'll have to see to what extent he can stabilize the situation. And for the international community, it will be difficult because. Bolsonaro could come back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like with the Europeans who are f- afraid of depending too much now on on U.S. security guarantees because they know, you know, Trump the could possibility of Trump. Yes, yeah, and mm-hmm. and Bolsonaro could very well be back. And I think all environmental protection that the international or help uh, that Brazil is or that the international community is willing to offer to Brazil. It's, it's it's always important to keep in mind that the situation on the ground remains, uh, for now, very uncertain. Okay, and I, I presume, you know, what you're in part saying is that you know, it would seem not un, uh, unreasonable for um, Brazil to expect financial financial assistance uh, in terms of protection of of the Amazon from particularly from developed, of developed countries, right? Yeah. That th- yeah. This I mean, is imperative. 
Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, we've, we're now at a point where, I mean, there's no way uh, the, the rest of the world can expect Brazil to, to foot this bill alone because I think people are, I think, unaware of these logistical challenges that that involves. I mean, our border to Bolivia is longer than the U.S. border to Mexico, right? And it's just one of many borders. I mean, Brazil has very long borders, even longer borders than that, with you know, to, to Peru and Venezuela mm-hmm. and Colombia. It's you know, it's a it's a big big challenge. And one thing that few people are talking about is that transnational crime is really much more powerful in Latin America, and it's severely undermining uh, undermining state authority across the region. Hmm. And, um, you know, I have uh, for years interviewed former presidents and former ministers across Latin America. And uh, I remember a a few years back, I I sat down with a former uh, president of Paraguay, and I asked him, you know, what's different today from uh, 20 years ago? And he said, 20 years ago, uh, transnational crime, the gangs and the cartels, they would pay our campaigns. And, and they said, now they're, they're sitting in, in Congress. They're uh, you know, in municipal councils. They're, um, they're profoundly influential actors in, in, in several administrations. I mean, you have um, massive violence now in countries that were protected un- until very recently, um, Ecuador. Uh, Uruguay, um, where now you're seeing, you know, uh, executions uh, in broad daylight in the center of cities, which is part of of, of gang warfare. Mm-hmm. And these are very, very sophisticated, large international uh, organizations. And the Amazon is, I mean, we, we not only have an area that's very large and difficult to monitor, but we also have a failed state. Well, uh, it's Venezuela uh, that shares a border in the midst of the Amazon where environmental destruction is so severe, but where people, because the, the airtime for Venezuela is so limited that whenever there's an article on Venezuela, it's about just the collapse of the country yeah. and not about the fact that in the South, you have unprecedented amounts of mercury being used to mine gold, which are producing large-scale environmental destruction. <laughs> you have all sorts of problems there. And you can't just send send in some, you know, the, the, the environmental watchdog because it's just too dangerous to operate there. And, you know, if you have journalists, international journalists from abroad getting killed uh, in the Amazon recently. Right. right. So it's a very, very uh, difficult um, project. And Brazil absolutely needs all and much, much more than I think has been promised. Uh, and I I would hope that um, either Kamala Harris or perhaps uh, John Kerry c- um, come down to the inauguration, really send a powerful signal and say, this isn't Brazil's problem alone. This is a, a global problem, global challenge. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, coming to the end uh, of our time together, but I did want to ask you, do you think that Lula, notwithstanding all these enormous concerns and problems that face him and the administration, do you think that, um, uh, you know, particularly because the global south is, takes, I'm looking here internationally, takes on the role of G20 hosts, in other words, currently it's Indonesia, um, and then uh, we're looking at India already, you know, in in December taking on the role 
of host. And then, in fact, Brazil taking on, on the role of host. Um, do you think um, we're going to see um, uh, Lula stepping up uh, to, to support a lot of the initiatives of the Global South uh, at, at G20 activities and other international forum? Or is he going to be too occupied to be able to do anything like that? Well, I think that uh, 20, you, we're talking here 2024, right? Right. That's actually ideal. Uh, I would have, I'd be very concerned if this would be taking place in Brazil next year. Because next year is really putting out fires and, and, and making sure consolidating political control mm-hmm. of the administration. Uh, we've seen a massive brain drain of experts. Uh, we've seen a massive brain. We, we've seen a, a, a brain drain of unprecedented proportions currently across Latin America, but mm-hmm. also in Brazil. A recent study revealed that 17% of Brazilians who travel abroad do not return. Mm-hmm. And these are many of these people are highly qualified. Uh, so Lula is taking over a country that is in a very, very difficult moment, much, much more difficult than when he became president first in 2003. Now, having said that, I also think that, I mean, people say a lot, you need to stabilize the situation internally in order to engage abroad. That's true, but you can also engage abroad to help you stabilize the situation internally. And climate change is one of these issues and assuming responsibility on the global uh, stage uh, can help you gain legitimacy at home. It's not only Bolsonaro who can basically earn some votes by saying, look, they hate me because right. I'm... You can also actually gain recognition abroad and use that electorally. And I think that's something Lula can absolutely do. I think in on, in some areas, the West will be disappointed because Lula yeah. has, just like Bolsonaro, um, no interest uh, inciting w- with the West when it comes to Ukraine, for example, because no long-standing ties to Russia. Also, no interest in, I think, punishing or or siding with uh, the West against China. China. Um, okay. Now, it's it would be simplistic to say that nothing will change. A lot will change because Brazil is certainly back in the game when it comes to multilateralism, when it comes to strengthening global governance, okay. when it comes to believing in the power of diplomacy to address global challenges. Brazil, I think Lula's goal is to be seen as a very constructive international actor, but all those involved, precisely to have some wiggle room strategically and say, you know, I want to be on good terms with China. I want to be on good terms with Russia. But, and the West will sort of accept that because we're really doing all we can to protect the Amazon, to be uh, seen as a key actor in, in comedy and climate change. Um, Lula personally likes to travel, likes diplomacy. And I think that even if there's trouble at home, the, the moment that Brazil will chair the G20, he wants that to be a big moment. Uh, okay. And I think that... Uh, I would expect there to be uh, the first working groups being established now uh, mm-hmm. to to make sure that this will not be uh, just another uh, you know event, but actually sort of a, a moment where Brazil is willing to project itself uh, as a 
constructive actor and also, again, willing to set the agenda of the global discussion, something the country hasn't been able to do over the past years. That's fair. So a final question. And uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, because you raised it, uh, the idea of a, of a second term, but you you then seem to back away a little bit from it. But, but you know, Lula has said on a number of occasions that he would not stand for a, a second term as, as president. That may be just rhetoric, I don't know. But if that is the case, do you think the younger generation of political leaders in Brazil, um, on both right and left, can they get past this current gulf uh, that seems to be kind of populist versus um, a more progressive approach to uh, policy making in Brazil? Is that is that on the cards? Uh, what's the future hold for Brazil? Well, the past years, uh, we've always joked that uh, it's so difficult to say what's going to happen a week from now in Brazilian politics. So it would be, of course, uh, impossible now to say how things will evolve. But it's very common for presidential candidates to say they will not seek re-election. Bolsonaro has actually said that uh, four years from now. but then, of course, you can always say, well, I would have I would have loved to retire, but the situation requires me to stay on, which is a typical. So he actually, even during the presidential uh, campaign several times, said, well, it wasn't me who wants to be president. I, but, you know, there's just we need to save this country, you know, and uh uh, so I, I, I would think that uh, it's it's really up in the air. Now, um, one of the reasons why we have on the left few leaders uh, with the potential to emerge is precisely because Lula was able to uh, stop their their emergence over the past I years see. quite successfully so. So whenever he was in power, he governed as a centrist. When he was in the opposition, he moved back to the left, not because he changed his mind, but because he wanted to close off basically the ideological space that would have allowed someone else to emerge. And we clearly have a um, a leadership problem in the country. I mean, because Lula is 77, right. uh, right. Bolsonaro is 67, um, and I think both have accumulated such a vast political capital and, and, and occupy so much space that uh, nobody in the middle, sort of ideologically speaking, has been able to emerge. And... Um, they, of course, the fact that they're still there, and Lula has for the, been a presidential candidate for the first time in 1989. I mean, he's been in presidential politics, not just in politics, but he's been a presidential candidate or president for the past three decades, uh, more than that, 33 years. So, um, and, and nobody is indifferent to these candidates, right? There's, uh, uh, and, and that I think, these, these, this uh, duality uh, is uh, will deepens polarization. And when I say polarization, I, I clearly think that Bolsonaro is, is a threat to democracy, whereas Lula may be accused of all sorts of things, and you know there were corruption scandals. And I disagree with uh, several of, of 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 his domestic or even foreign policy decisions he's made uh, throughout his uh, his political career. But he's not sort of. He, he doesn't articulate an, an authoritarian project in that sense, um, but still um, the polarization that we have in Brazil today makes a rational debate very difficult. Uh, I think um, it will be a tremendous challenge for Lula to 
govern in a country where people, a part of the electorate doesn't think he's legitimate. Um, yeah. And one of the major challenges, I think, to protect uh, Brazilian democracy is to not um, reduce our disagreements. It's it's actually really important that there is disagreement about policy areas, but we must learn again how to actually manage these disagreements without sort of you know mutually demonizing each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I think social media doesn't help at all because the algorithms favor the extremes. Extremes, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. and we've looked at the numbers of, of of political influencers on social media and people who are radicals, both on the left and the right, just do better. Uh, and that's a problem because if you're a politician, you need your digital ecosystem. So you need to have this very powerful podcast you can go to uh, to explain your ideas. You need at least some people who are willing to give you to hear you. But if you're a centrist right now, it's it's, it's it's kind of hard because there's all these super popular YouTubers who could invite you, but who may, you know, not give you a, 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 a you know, a, a hearing, basically. And I think that for, um, mm-hmm. for centrists considering, you know, joining politics, they'll look at that and say, you know, it's not really, an, an, it's a very hostile environment. So I think... Overcoming this deep division will be the biggest challenge that uh, Brazil as a society faces. Uh, And unless it manages to overcome these divisions, we will face another huge threat to our democracy four years from now. Wow. Well, I want to thank you, Oliver, for such insight into Brazilian politics, Brazilian society. Certainly your um, your examination of social media and the impact that social media has is really uh, enlightening and, you know, being seen (laughs) in some other societies as well. So thank you for giving us these kinds of insights into uh, Brazil's politics. Thank you very much for the invitation.